Hi, and welcome to the GBI Conversations podcast. My name is Katie Chavin, and I am the host of this first series. The Global Business Initiative on Human Rights is a business-led cross-industry organisation that works to advance business respect for human rights around the world through practical peer learning and by sharing insights from business practice. GBI's team and network of advisors bring deep experience and immersion in business and human rights developments, unique insights into emerging business practices and approaches, and a commitment to working towards meaningful outcomes for affected people. I'm an advisor to GBI focusing on legal developments and responsible transitions. In this podcast series, I'm talking to a number of GBI's advisors and team members about mandatory human rights due diligence requirements. In this series, we'll be exploring questions that aim to support business practitioners to think critically about their company's approach to human rights and to position their company to navigate these new measures in ways that also meet the expectations of their stakeholders. For example, how can you know if your company's human rights due diligence is really good enough? What do you need to know about downstream due diligence? And how are mandatory due diligence laws affecting expectations of companies when it comes to remedying human rights impacts? Today, I'm speaking to Anita Ramasastri. Anita is a senior advisor to the Global Business Initiative on Human Rights and an expert in the fields of anti-corruption, sustainable development and business and human rights. She's known to many in these fields from her former role as a member and chair of the UN Human Rights Council's Working Group on Business and Human Rights. Anita, how are you today? I'm doing well. So today we're going to talk about how commercial lawyers can support companies to implement effective human rights due diligence, to manage legal risk and to meet their stakeholders' expectations. I'd like to start by asking you to say a few more words about your professional background and to tell our listeners a bit about your recent work on and your interest in the role of lawyers in this space. Great. Thanks so much, Katie. I should start by saying that in addition to the great intro you gave me, I'm also a law professor at the University of Washington here in Seattle. So we get the chance to both teach future business and human rights lawyers, but I also work with a large number of the companies in our region who, as you can imagine, between the Amazons, the Microsofts and the Starbucks, right, are large players in the field of responsible business conduct. But before that, I have worked as a lawyer myself. Um, I was a lawyer, a government lawyer with the Federal Reserve in New York. Um, So really an in-house, but in-house for a government body, but had a lot of responsibility for overseeing financial institutions and banks and sort of making sure that they complied with the law and kept our money safe and worked in project finance with another international corporate law firm. So I've been in the driver's seat as a lawyer, but now as a law professor, I train lawyers and I've been writing a about the responsibilities of lawyers and other professional service providers when it comes to implementation of the guiding principles. We focus a lot on the company when we talk about business and human rights, but we haven't focused as much on those advising them. And the UN guiding principles make it pretty clear the UNGPs apply to all kinds of actors, so lawyers and consultants should be included. Thank you, Anita. That's really helpful background context. We've We've been talking a lot in this podcast series about hardening expectations of companies as mandatory human rights due diligence laws are introduced. It's really shifting from something that's been the right thing to do and what many stakeholders expect of business to also now becoming a a matter of hard legal compliance. In turn, this is, of course, impacting the role of commercial lawyers in processes that 
in many companies up until recently have been primarily led by sustainability and social performance teams. Could you talk us through how mandatory measures are changing the role of commercial lawyers in, in human rights due diligence processes? What opportunities does their growing role bring? And also, do you see any risks that companies should be mindful of as they bring their lawyers into this work? Well, I think compliance, there's nothing more to get a company's attention and to change their priorities than the law. So if you have to comply with laws and regulations, you do. So I think for the business and human rights community, we do see this as a watershed moment that companies now of all kinds, the leaders and the laggards are going to have to pay attention. So they will bring their lawyers in. And I'm sure we're going to see an increase in the number of law firms around the world that have a business and human rights or ESG practice. So that's already growing, but now it will. And they'll hire people who are seasoned compliance lawyers who deal with things like privacy, data protection, anti-corruption, export control, you name it and sort of ask them to sort of retool and refit to become business and human rights lawyers. So it's a good opportunity in the sense that companies will be seeking good legal advice. I guess the question for all of us is, are they going to get good legal advice? And that's the challenge, that because a lawyer has experience in compliance, they probably didn't have a course in business and human rights in law school. They probably are not human rights experts. Have they done rights holder engagement? Probably not. So approaching business and human rights as a purely compliance issue really has a lot of pitfalls. And I think that's one of the things that GBI and others can do is really help people understand what's the same, right? Making sure that you do have processes, having lawyers involved, understanding legal risk, but understanding human rights risk and risk to people at the same time. So it's more about really seeking out people who have human rights expertise, who have learned about the guiding principles and engaging with people who are human rights experts. One of the most important things I think for all of us is that companies and law firms alike need to actually engage with civil society much, much more actively to truly be good business and human rights lawyers and provide that good advice to help companies prevent human rights abuses in their activities. So how are law firms and external counsel responding to these developments? What do you find encouraging in terms of law firm practices and the provision of support to companies? And do you have any concerns about the direction of travel? Well, as I said, I think we should first say this is an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity to change the nature of legal practice and to get this right. So some of the encouraging things we see is I do think the increasing focus of leading law firms that do have the ear of companies and will be hired in this space. I think that is encouraging. So then the question is, are they staffing up and training people in the right way? And I do think that this is where law firms can really look for younger associates and people who they're hiring who do bring those skills, who may have had a stronger connection to human rights and international law education, to looking for people who actually probably have worked within civil society organizations and do have a slightly different perspective than just a traditional commercial, corporate, and transactional. And that having the skills blended in teams between both strength and human rights, strength and compliance, and then strength and just traditional corporate work, litigation, and sort of transactional work will make for a strong team that can speak the language of companies and provide good advice to them. I think companies won't know what they don't know. So just having a lawyer that that speaks their language isn't going to be enough. We need lawyers that are going to help companies understand that this new regulatory expectation is slightly different than checking a box to say, yes, we have safeguards so that no one pays a bribe, that we're actually going to be talking about processes that require you to start from soup to nuts or from the beginning 
of thinking about where do we need to engage with rights holders and stakeholders to understand the problems that may arise from our business activity, what steps are we going to take to prevent them, what kind of remedy mechanisms we're going to need. So it's going to require a slightly different, more holistic, process-based approach uh, where we don't always know what the problems are before we actually begin implementing processes. It's a really interesting point that you make, Anita, because it gets to a challenge that's confronting a lot of major law firms that are serious about managing their human rights risks and issues. We see that while increasingly clients will ask directly for support on human rights matters, human rights issues can come to light in the course of a huge array of matters, and often the client won't have have raised it with the firm explicitly, meaning that firms really need to create that broad base level awareness of, of business and human rights uh, across their lawyers so that these human rights issues can be identified and discussed with the client um, as they come up. That doesn't necessarily mean that all lawyers need to specialise in business and human rights, but they do need to be able to spot the issues, to feel confident talking about it with the client and to be able to draw in colleagues with that specialised knowledge across the firm where that's needed. I'd like to ask you that same question about um, how lawyers responding to these developments, but this time with a focus on the role of in-house lawyers. And actually, Katie, can we back up for a second and maybe just do, um, no, I'll just add um, to my reflections on kind of the future of the law firm to say that there's a, a, a issue, though, that exists right now that we need to correct. Right now, if a company wants advice on business and human rights, they can get it from a law firm, but it tends to be a specialized practice group. So you'll go online and you'll find other business and human rights practice and ESG practice sustainability, and that those lawyers are there to provide advice for companies who want it. So if a company wants to do a human rights impact assessment, perhaps does have a problem with respect to access to remedy, they'll seek that specialized help. The guiding principles are a sort of proactive and preventive set of principles and tools that are meant to help companies develop processes that exist for everything, where they identify those salient or perhaps now what we would call material human rights risks to people and then have processes in place across the board. So if we think about lawyers giving advice to companies, it, it, it really runs the gamut. So we have you know, insolvency practitioners, we have practitioners that deal with real estate, we have mergers and acquisitions lawyers, we have lawyers that deal with securities and initial public offerings. And what we don't have there is discussions when those lawyers provide advice to a company about are there human rights implications or should they think about human rights implications of a particular situation. So let's just take mergers and acquisitions because I think that's easier to picture which is that you need to think about not only the human rights record of the company that is the one merging or acquiring, but that an M&A lawyer should be asking, you know, what are the human rights impacts or risks of the company that we are either acquiring or merging with and thinking through kind of the human rights implications and thinking, is there a way to do this well? Can we ask for assurances from the other company? You know, what else do we need to think about? But my guess is for most M&A transactions, there is no business and human rights assessment, right? There's lots of due diligence. We're looking at the documents and the financial uh, soundness of a partner company, but we're not thinking about the human rights risks that come with that merger. So it's those kinds of things where we have to say, can we make business and human rights a much more holistic part of how lawyers do their work? It's such an important observation and I think really also draws attention to the need to support lawyers in whatever part of the firm or speciality they have to to feel confident raising those questions with clients as well, right? Because often the client won't ask specifically about about the human rights risks and if they haven't, 
bringing it up and encouraging that to be included in, in the scope of work can feel very, very difficult uh, for, for many commercial lawyers, particularly those who don't have a, a background practising in, in this area. So I'd like to take us back. We were talking about how law firms and external counsel are responding to these developments. And I'm keen to ask you much the same question, but with a focus on the role of in-house lawyers. What does good look like when it comes to helping the company manage legal risk and implement human rights due diligence in a way that is meaningful and effective? And what are some of the potential pitfalls that, that in-house lawyers need to be mindful of? Well, I think it's hard to know what good is going to look like for every uh, company because it's going to depend on their size. And, you know, for smaller companies, they may not have an in-house legal team. So we're talking about sort of medium size or larger size firms that do have an in-house counsel or compliance or risk management team. I will say that what we've typically seen, and Katie, you already mentioned this, which is that, you know, I think of some of my graduates who are working as business and human rights lawyers within large multinationals, they tend to not be in the general counsel's office. They tend to be in that human rights or sustainability sustainability team. And, you know, some of those companies will still consult them or bring them into larger discussions when there is a bigger issue. But I would say that that we're going to see with this sort of move to regulation and the hardening, as you mentioned, that we will now see people that are hired within the general counsel's team of companies that have business and human rights or sustainability and supply chains as kind of part of their portfolio if not the whole portfolio. So I do think that that movement will be important, which is because it is not only a compliance issue, but something that you want to bake into a larger set of business practices, having that lawyer who is in the legal team who has that competence. I think the other thing too is really trying to train all of the lawyers that are in-house to understand business and human rights at some basic level, just like managers are trained. You know, there's a lot of training of other types of company employees around business and human rights over the past decade to make sure your lawyers are included too, so that they can spot those issues when they are dealing with whatever it is. I've written and said a lot about, for example, the connection between bribery and business and human rights, right? If a bribe is paid, there may be an ancillary business and human rights issue. You know, an environmental impact assessment maybe wasn't done, and maybe there are now human rights issues that are flowing from the failure of a company to do something. So I think it's about, again, making our lawyers better equipped in-house. I think it's still going to be a challenge. And I think for the lawyers who do work in-house right now, just like you mentioned within the law firm, it's just, you know, this is still a financial commitment of a company to do a human rights impact assessment, to look for human rights issues, uh, and to do stakeholder consultation. And so often companies are not as receptive uh, to needing to do these things. And so I think, again, it's about the general counsel in, in a company having a very strong support and case for why investment today in business and human rights is a smart investment for tomorrow. I'm not saying it's the business case. It's about more of the company having a process that's going to be one that can be embedded and used regularly, not waiting for a pandemic or a dam collapse or something else to happen, and then having to try to sort of reverse engineer and create things that didn't exist. I think it's a really important point because it also takes us back to the mindset shift that's often required for in-house lawyers from exclusively thinking about how do we protect the company from legal risks to how do we also keep that lens on risks to people. And these mandatory due diligence laws really put the focus on both of those things at the same time. But it seems to me there's a real opportunity as well in, in, in leveraging the increasing role of in-house lawyers, given they do have a very unique position within the company and an ability often to influence how um, 
human rights and and other issues that they're working on are, are perceived in terms of I guess their their relevance to to how business happens at a very core and strategic level. And I think one of the ways, and, and I think what's harder about business and human rights, and Katie, you've uh, noted this, which is how do you get people to understand risks to people and what it means to design compliance programs and mechanisms that really help prevent that harm. Uh, bribery, for example, or even data protection is a little bit more abstract. We know that preventing bribery or we know that keeping data safe is good, but I think we tend for lawyers not to always go around thinking about sort of the, the harm to the end person as the primary driver for how companies or lawyers advise. An area that may be a little bit more analogous is in the area of environmental protection. So that comp- you know lawyers that have sometimes work in-house or in law firms often join those practices because they do have a strong interest in uh, protecting people and protecting the planet. And that in their own life, education and work, they have become accustomed or familiar with kind of the impacts of not having strong environmental safeguards and protections so that when they come to the job, if they are a sort of good lawyer, they do have that sort of understanding and mindset um, there as they are advising their company. It's not to say all lawyers do that. There are going to be others that are going to try to cut corners. So I think it's that same thing with business and human rights. And that's where, again, as we raise that next generation of lawyers, this is going to be a place where senior lawyers, as hard as it is, to some extent are going to should listen to the younger lawyers that are coming out of law schools or and younger because they will have taken courses. They will have been uh, required to engage. You know, in my class in business and human rights, we begin with a human rights defender speaking about the vivid impact of, of uh, the failure to protect human rights for migrant workers in the supply chain, right? And so in speaking to him or to her, it's it's hard to sort of turn away from the real issues that exist. And that, I think, impacts the way students think about it. I have people who I know are going to be corporate lawyers meet with people who work for leading civil society organizations and start to see them as people who are critical allies, not as people who are to be feared. Does that same feeling or understanding exist among sort of senior people? Well, I did not have a business and human rights class when I went to law school. I didn't meet human rights defenders. I didn't know who they were. So it really does require that shift. And so the shift can come sometimes from the bottom up. And it's really helpful. I was actually going to ask you later about um, how we build capacity, because it seems like such a huge challenge right now. And particularly as we think about what needs to be in place to ensure the success of, of mandatory human rights due diligence laws. And by success, I mean ensuring that they do drive and scale meaningful and effective um, business practices in this area that, you know, suddenly there's this huge demand for legal services that we're not really in a position to meet right now. I mean, so given that we have this this challenge and this real need to, to build capacity at scale uh, among the legal profession, from your sort of vantage point within a university, what other suggestions do you have about ways we might go about that? So I think the first one is, you know, we think about the role of the bar and professional associations, right, that they have an important role in what we call continuing legal education that exists around the world. And we see some of that already, the International Bar Association, the American Bar Association, the ILA, they all have lawyers, and they, but they tend to be uh, more corporate lawyers focused on business and human rights. So I think 
that we just need to make sure that they continue to prov provide an important role, both normatively and saying that this subject matter is important in looking at the rules of professional conduct and trying to co constantly sort of reexamine what that means in terms of being ethical lawyers and giving good advice, but then more importantly, capacity building. So we did see at the last UN Forum on Business and Human Rights, a new Business and Human Rights Lawyers Association, which has just sprung up. And so that is a really positive development. I would note, though, that it is just corporate law firms at the moment. So what I would say is, first of all, you know, I, I, I joked about the name. It's not truly a Business and Human Rights Lawyers Association. It's a kind of corporate Business and Human Rights Lawyers Association, but still useful. Um, my hope over time would be that that particular organization could actually grow um, to include lawyers that work in government and civil society. And again, you could say membership to people who are truly working in some kind of legal capacity as opposed to other things. But that cross-fertilization um, of lawyers representing plaintiffs, lawyers representing corporations, lawyers representing governments, it is that honest and sort of uh, chance to have a safe space to dialogue, to network, to develop good standards, that is, I think, will be the ideal. So maybe not today, right? There's enough of a challenge for law firms, but maybe in the future, we can see this sort of expanded nature of this as a professional area of practice. That would be, I think, my biggest hope. Before we wrap up, I'd like to talk a little bit uh, more about legal risk. In addition to creating human rights due diligence obligations, the emerging mandatory due diligence laws are also changing the landscape when it comes to litigation risk for companies involved in adverse impacts. And last week I talked to John Drimmer a bit about this in connection with access to remedy. But, you know, for example, we, we see these laws making provision for civil claims to be brought against companies that cause or contribute to adverse impacts and haven't adequately remedied, remedied them. From your perspective, what challenges does this growing litigation risk present for companies and their lawyers? And how can a company respond to or defend against civil claims in a rights-respecting way? You know, what do litigation lawyers need to be thinking about? So I think this is a really big problem and issue. So the reason that we're going to have, we hope, in the new uh, laws like the European Directive, access to civil remedy for victims of corporate human rights abuses is the problem of having remedy, right? That that if there is a harm that is connected to a company, um, where do they go and how do they get there? And I would say that we do need to re-examine the role of the legal profession when it comes to human rights litigation. Very few cases have actually been successful over the past 10 to 20 years in transnational human rights litigation. We're starting to see a little bit of a shift, but it's a really uphill battle. So the new laws will ease some of the burden. It will make it procedurally a bit easier, I'll just say a bit, to go to court. Um, will that mean that we're going to have more remedy? I would say at the moment, probably not. Um, if we think about how commercial kind of corporate lawyers typically respond, right? It's about years and years of motion litigation to try to get cases removed from court. The current idea that lawyers have often is that they should zealously represent their clients, right? That they have that right and that they should provide that. You know, sometimes a, I think a human rights lawyer might say a scorched earth approach to the litigation. So I think that we have to start to have honest discussions around, first of all, are companies willing to truly invest in alternatives to litigation, right? So rather than years and years of that, um, can we instead focus on um, non-judicial remedies, national contact points, and other things that will be good for everybody. 
And so that will require companies and law firms alike to really see the benefit in that, right? Not just zealous defense. I think a second piece is that we do need, I think, to think about human rights litigation as slightly different from the run of the mill corporate defense and say, is there something different about this that should mean that companies aren't going to always raise the sort of kitchen sink of defenses in the name of their client because there is something different about this and the harm to people. That's a larger um, question and I think lawyers need to have that. I will say that there are some companies who I think in, in, in retaining external counsel are sometimes making different decisions about what they will or will not allow that, those lawyers to do when it comes to defense. So I think th those discussions between in-house counsel and external counsel are tremendously important in terms of thinking about access to remedy. So Katie, I wish I had a magic wand, but I think that we should not shy away from having these honest discussions about the fact that um, truly the reason we have this field is because we know people have been harmed around the world. But yet when we ask how many of them have actually been helped um, over the years that we end up um, really uh, scratching our head about, you know, effective remedy. So if that's the challenge, then lawyers really do need to be part of the solution uh, to this conundrum. It's a really important question that you raise. You know, how do you, how does a company approach defending litigation in, in a rights-respecting way? As you know, I'm a non-practicing but Australian-trained lawyer, and in Australia, many government agencies are now subject to model litigant obligations and guidelines. And I've, I've often wondered whether they could offer some inspiration for companies who are trying to figure out how do you balance that legitimate interest in defending litigation where you you see a a, a need to do so with your commitment to respecting human rights. I mean, so for example, in, in Australia, these guidelines expect um, government departments and agencies to behave as what's called a, a model litigant. You know, they have to act honestly and fairly, they have to seek to resolve disputes as quickly as possible, not rely on technical defences or take advantage of a, a claimant that lacks resources and, you know, look for ways to keep costs to a minimum. Um, it's, it's, a I guess, a way of recognising that government bodies have greater power than, than the individuals and other private litigants they tend to be up against and that it's not okay to abuse that. Um, you know, the situation of business in, in this space is not completely anal analogous, but, you know, there are some similarities there. And you know, I, I sort of wonder what it would look like for, you know, whether it's sort of disputes lawyers writ large or, or companies that are, are really committed to trying to figure out what a, a different way looks like to take some inspiration from that and come up with a way that kind of balances um, how law works with um, the, the sorts of challenges that you've described. Yes. No, Katie, that's a really interesting point. And so I think you're onto something with this idea of looking at sort of other models, um, even if they come from sort of the government, of what it means to sort of be a much more equitable litigant in these processes. And so if we look to public litigation or public um, you know, cases as a model, you know, again, I think we need to say that human rights litigation is different. And so if we start to think about that, then again, these professional associations could help um, broker some honest discussions between human rights uh, NGOs that bring litigation, uh, plaintiffs firms that litigate, and then the corporate defense firms to talk about, you know, what is a reasonable path and a way forward for us all um, in this area. Anita, Thank you so much for your time today. Um, as always, it's been a, a real pleasure talking to you and I'm so glad we found an opportunity to dig into this topic. Before we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts you wanted to share with our listeners? Yeah, so I think that the larger thought is that 
um, lawyers who think that this is the area that they want to practice in, whether they're new graduates or whether they're people who are saying, okay, I'm going to bring this, you know, become a BHR lawyer alongside my compliance function, really understand how little you actually know. I mean, Katie, you and I have been doing this for some time and I realize how little I actually know about sort of how business and human rights work. So it is very important, I think, to seek out uh, the company of other people and other lawyers and uh, to understand how to get this right. This is peer learning is going to be critical for the next 10 years or so. What a wonderful note to end this podcast series on. Anita, thank you so much. Um, and I wish you a, a wonderful rest of your day. Great. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate and review it on Apple Podcast and share it with colleagues or peers you think would also get value from it. For more information about GBI, head to our website at gbihr.org. And for more practical insights into how companies are approaching human rights risks and issues, check out the Business Practice Portal, a unique online resource created by business for business which can be accessed from our website.